Good morning, Saltbox. Man, worship was good. I am thrilled uh, to be with you guys. We are in uh, Luke 24. If you have a Bible, if you're going to take your phone, as Monica pointed out, um, we're in Luke 24. We've been in a series called the Easter Sequence. It's been fascinating because we've been looking at the latter portion of Mark. So we talked about uh, the Mount of Olives and Bethany. Then we talked about uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we talked about Golgotha. Um, which was really, really powerful, I think, Easter. Um, today we're looking at the Emmaus Road, which is a very unusual little passage that Luke, the author of this book, threw in there. And then next week we're going to be looking at the ascension and the commission that Christ gave uh, his disciples before he left. Sound good? All right. Uh, so let's uh, dig in. I'm going to start by reading, and then we'll go from there. So I'm in Luke 24, and we're going to start at verse 13. And we're going to go through... Let's see, verse 36. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? And do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He is a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this very morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to a tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did the Messiah have to suffer these things? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Lord Jesus, as we gather today, as we open your word, Father, would you mold us, would you make us, would you shape us? 
Lord, would you remind us that we, in fact, have been crucified with you, and you're now living your life in us and through us. Father, would you enliven our hearts and our minds today, and would you call us deeper into the word and deeper into this community? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so big chunk of scripture. Here's what we're going to do. Um, before you eat dinner, you set the table, right? Yeah. So then what we're going to do is uh, I want to actually set the table with a, with a personal story, and then I want to set the table with some um, just history that I think is really pertinent, and then I want to look at the actual metamorphosis that Cleopas and this person traveling with him went through that day. Does that sound good? And as always, the point is that you actually find yourself in these scriptures. The point of the scriptures, James actually referenced it as like a mirror that you can gaze into, that the Lord can begin to speak to you, that you can find him and he can find you. Does that sound good? Story? Then we got a little historical thing we're going to set the table with, and then we're going to talk about the metamorphosis that Cleopas and this fellow journeyer went through on that particular day. So um, in 2012, um, I got an invitation to go on a sailing trip. It was a serious sailing trip. I'm not a very good sailor. And they called me up, and it was a friend of mine that I used to climb with. And uh, they had a whole list of people that they were going through, and somehow I made the cut, and they called me up, and they said, Michael, will you come and sail this race with us from Virginia to the Caribbean? What? That's a serious race, you know? This isn't like the intercoastal waterway or something. They said, yeah, we, we picked you, not because you're a very good sailor. And I'm like, gee, thanks. <laughs> but because we figure you're pretty good under pressure. I said, okay, sounds good. So Abby and I talked, we prayed, and I went, okay, I'm going to do this. It's like a 1,300-mile like race, serious race. So they were all preparing, whatever. I flew in, or drove up, actually, and uh, we got on the boat in Virginia, and we set sail. And we were in a 37-foot slooped rig sailboat, if you know anything about sailing. And uh, every other boat in the entire race was at least 15 feet longer than us. And, and so sailing, just in a nutshell, um, to win a race, it's, a, it's basically a mathematic principle of your length at the waterline. Like, in order to win, you've got to be, you know, the bigger the boat, the faster you're going to go. It's just the way it is. So we are the smallest, slowest boat in the whole fleet. And to make matters worse, our captain and our crew are very experienced sailors, but they've never done more of an open water crossing like this. So we get into this trip, and what happens is a storm kicks up. Now, we're several hundred miles off the coast. I didn't know exactly how much because I hadn't looked at the chart. And on this particular boat, you run um, straps from the bow of the boat to the stern of the boat, front to back. And as you're steering, you actually clip in in two spots so the waves don't sweep you off the deck. To make matters worse, our, um, our autopilot had gone out. So we are literally on every hour and a half, we are four of us are rotating through the night and we're steering. And this storm comes up. And there is nothing in the boat that is left on the shelves. So down in, in, the, in the bottom of the boat, it's a very nice boat, but literally the boat is, is, is going from one side and this rail dips in and then it'll you know, lurch back the other way and this rail dips in and then it'll actually catch the waves and it surfs down the waves. And then the nose buries into the next wave in front of it. I mean, it was like, I was like, oh my goodness. There is a God and I am not him. So we're down there, and it is the middle of the night. It's about 3 in the morning, and it's the worst that it got. The storm lasted for two days. It was the absolute worst. And the captain is on deck. He's steering. He's strapped in. And he opens this little um, thing, uh, the, the, the door down, and he says, get the Coast Guard on the line. 
I'm like, what? And we have a um, pilot, really amazing uh, pilot, who was one of the four-member crews, and he pulls out a chart, and he starts figuring out where we are, and he's using our GPS, whatever, and he goes, we're 410 miles off the coast of North Carolina. I go, wow, 410 miles. He said, oh, and just coincidentally, we're in 25,000 feet of water. <laughs> Thanks for that tidbit. <laughs> the captain says, get the Coast Guard on the line, and he calls the Coast Guard, and he gets them on the line, and... What begins to unfold is a semi-meltdown of our crew because the storm is so serious. And it's this cataclysmic moment that sort of happens when you have embarked on any endeavor. And I think it actually happens in almost everything we do in life where you embark on something. You like put all your chips on the table. You're like, I'm all in. I'm going for this. We're going to do it. And you, and you get it all out there. And then all of a sudden there's this, what have I done? What have I done? And if you've ever embarked upon anything of, of great seriousness, I assure you that you've felt that. Can I continue this? Does this thing that I started, do I own it or does it own me? Do I have the, the internal character and fortitude to actually see this thing through, to hold the helm? On that particular trip when we would take turns at the helm, especially in the middle of the night and you're the only one standing on the deck, and you're literally wearing our rain slickers, so your, your, your rain slickers tied up like this, and you got your, uh, your, your boots on, and you have your, uh, your bibs on, and the water's awash, and you're literally going, oh my goodness. The storm was so big, we had triple reefed the main. So that basically means you have a main sail, and the first reef happens when it's a big storm. The second reef happens, makes the, the sail even smaller when it's a bigger storm, and you triple reef the main when you're in trouble. And it's this little tiny, little tiny triangle that keeps you sailing forward. And so the captain opened that and said, get the Coast Guard on the line. And we get the Coast Guard on the line, and they said, can you come get us? If we get into trouble, can you come get us? And the answer was, well, we have to have a 10% fuel reserve. So if we get out there, we're going to have about six minutes to get you on the boat. And whoever's not on the boat, we got to go back. Or not on the copter, excuse me. We have six minutes by the time we get to where your exact location is to get you on the copter if something happens. And if you can't get on, we got to go back. And so I looked at the guy next to me, and I was, I was literally, I, my headlamp's on. You know, it's like you're, you, I looked at him next to me and said, will you tell me where that life raft is again? Will you tell me how to work it again? And we had a serious discussion. And the captain basically wanted to say, hey, guys, your blood, your blood is literally on your heads if we continue. And we all went, we're all in. Chips are in. We don't feel like we're at risk. We're going to keep going. And we did finally make it. Dead last, several days late, but we made it. <laughs> now, here's the point of even telling this story. Because what has happened is you have a small group of people in the New Testament who have left everything. I mean, they have given it all. They have walked away from careers. They have walked away from families. They have... Uh, put all of their finances on the line. Some of them would have actually gone, spent everything they had to help support Jesus and his ministry in those days. They were like all in. You know in a poker game where you push your chips into the center of the table? They were all in. There was nothing left for these people. And I think it's so fascinating here that you have Luke, and, and Luke is this, the author of both Luke and Acts, which maybe we'll get into more at, on another day. But he is fascinating to me as he writes this whole um, book because he's actually the only, the only Gentile author of all the Bible. 
Isn't that wild? The only, he's one of us. It's amazing. He's got this scientific mind, and he, the way he writes in both Luke and in Acts is absolutely fascinating. And so we come to this point, and I'm actually like, why would you include this little story of these two people in the Gospels? What is the significance of Cleopas? We, didn't hear of, we did not hear of him before, and we don't hear of him again. But Jesus shows up, and he walks with these two. Why? What is happening? Jesus first appeared, it looks like, to Mary Magdalene. He then appeared, and we have no record of it other than it says he appeared to Simon. So he appeared second to Simon Peter. And then he appeared to Cleopas and this other traveler. Why? What is happening? What is going on in them? And what is the message, therefore, for us today? So, Cleopas is in this moment all his chips are in. He has given everything. And let me actually just read to you uh, John 19.25. You can make a note. You don't have to, to turn there. But John 19.25 says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So if you're Cleopas... And you have given all to this movement. This carpenter from Nazareth. You have followed him. You have been with him. You have given all. And it appears like he is dead. And the entire thing came to a grinding halt. And you're like throwing up your hands. And you're going, I'm going home. Who's going with you? You're in Jerusalem. You're going home. Who's going with you? Your wife. We have Cleopas and Mary. That's who's traveling. Cleopas and Mary are traveling on this road. And then it's fascinating because it actually says they were kept from recognizing him. That's remarkable to me. What could it be that kept these two from recognizing Jesus? My first point is Jesus actually engages these two, Cleopas and Mary, in their disbelief and their depression, and then he walks with them. So just imagine with me that you're back there on that day. Jesus has been killed. We talked about it in depth last week. If you weren't here, you could go and listen. But it's now the third day. And for a Jewish person, the day begins and ends at 6 p.m. It's coming towards the end of the third day. The sun is starting to dip low into the sky, and Cleopas and Mary are at this point where, like, we've given everything. We may have left jobs. We've probably spent everything we had to, to follow Jesus, and now he's gone. And at some level, we are wrecked. We are having a cataclysmic moment like I did on that boat. What are we doing? What have I gotten myself into? And Jesus suddenly walks up, probably a couple of minutes after they walked out of the gates of Jerusalem, And they're walking along, and what it actually says is Cleopas and Mary are so discouraged, downcast, deeply depressed. They've given all, and it's end up bankrupt. It's end up void. And Jesus walks up to them, and in traditional rabbinic style, Jesus Jesus engages them with two questions. What are you talking about? And Cleopas tells them. And then Jesus said, what things are you talking about? And Cleopas probably almost is um, 
maybe sassy is a good word, sassy towards Jesus. He's like, what are you, a visitor? I mean, like, what's your problem? The entire city is abuzz with the reality of what just happened on this little hill called Golgotha, and you don't even know, like, who are you? And then they go into what happened. They, he says, we've lost Jesus of Nazareth, the best person we've ever known. He says, a great prophet has gone. There's been no great prophets in Israel for over 400 years. God has not even spoken to us as a country in 400 years. Like, it's been silent, and suddenly we have a prophet in our midst, and now he's dead. I mean, this guy wants to just rend his clothes. Our own Jewish leaders and our own Roman rulers, those that we even maybe respected, have killed him, and we've lost faith in our own leaders. We've given up. This Jesus was subject to judicial murder, even assassination. They killed him without cause. All our hopes for the future, is what Cleopas said, have been built on this man. We had hoped that he'd, he'd set us free. We'd hoped that he would deliver Israel from Rome. And I think it's really important that we even make a note here. Because when, as believers, we are more immature, we are up fully focused on what is Jesus going to do for me, us. What is Jesus going to do for me? And as you mature, you begin to go, what is Jesus doing in the larger kingdom around me? And then how can I actually uh, become a companion and participant with him in advancing the gospel around me? And you begin to take this larger view. But Cleopas and his wife are still in this spot where our, all our hopes were built on this man. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. We would hope that he would set us free. And then he ends with, we actually thought he was going to come back on the third day. They'd listened to what Jesus said. They didn't understand it. They're like, we actually had thought that Jesus would come back on the third day, which Jesus had said he would. So Cleopas and Mary were hanging out in Jerusalem, literally waiting. Day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, and it's now probably three or four in the afternoon. The sun's starting to set. The Jewish day ends at six, and they go, it's over. Let's go home. All that we had hoped for is lost. And they begin to walk out those city gates Seven miles, it'd be like walking from here to maybe the south end of Wrightsville Beach. And they walk, and Jesus shows up, and he begins to talk with them. He meets them, he engages their disbelief, he engages their depression, and he walks with them. I want you to note that Jesus always meets us where we are before he asks us to come to where he is, always. He always comes to meet us before he calls us to come with him. Make note, though, after he comes and meets us, there is a point where he then says, come and follow me. He won't let you stay where you are forever. He says, come and follow me. So this was the state of all of Jesus' disciples, depressed, bummed out. I think the other thing that's important to, to note here is they're not fully calling him God. They're still calling him a what? Prophet. Yeah, fascinating. They're not quite there yet. And then the other thing I think before we continue we have to at least look at is why didn't they recognize him? 
I mean, it literally says, I just read to you John, whatever, 1925, and, and Mary, wife of Cleopas, says, was literally standing at the foot of the cross. How could she not recognize him? I've read all sorts of different takes on this. There's some people says that they were still crying. Maybe. Maybe. Three days. Sounds to me like by reading this, they've gone into more depression and frustration than tears, although they could have still been crying. Some people say, well, they're walking into the setting sun, so the sun was on their face, and, you know, maybe they didn't recognize Jesus. Ah, I don't know. Some people say maybe they didn't see Jesus up close and personal, but Mary was right there at the foot of the cross. It says so, so I, I don't buy that one either. I actually wondered if God intentionally blinded them so he could illustrate for us today how to walk with Jesus. I wonder if he intentionally blinded them for a season so he could illustrate how we are called to walk with him and how he walks with us. It could be that they were simply closed to the possibility that this was Jesus. It could be that they just they saw him die and they just couldn't grasp in their minds how this could be him. But either way, you have Cleopas and Mary who for whatever reason do not know that this is a risen King Jesus. And the second thing that Jesus does, this is my second point if you're taking notes, he opens the mission of Christ by opening the scriptures. Now this is really fascinating to me. This is brilliant. Because what happens here on that road is this is what it says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, what were their scriptures? Did they have Luke? Did they have Acts? Did they have the epistles? Well, so, what, so, so Jesus is literally doing a Bible study. Now, it would probably take us to go to here to the South End of Wrightsville Beach. It would take us at least two and a half hours if we're walking and not running. So you have a two and a half hour Bible study where Jesus is literally walking alongside this couple and helping them understand. He's, it says he literally goes through the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then it says he goes through the prophets. There's major prophets and there's minor prophets. It doesn't say the Psalms specifically, but I would think he walked through them. And he literally walked through the scriptures. He does this Bible study and he starts opening their eyes to the reality that since eternity past, God called Jesus to come to earth and to die on our behalf. And it's there. There's these, this thing afoot in, in modern um, sort of Christian America where we can dismiss the Old Testament. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I love this. I love that he did a Bible study with them. I love that he walked them through. Now, I've often said, Lord Jesus, if only I had been there and you could have walked with me like that and explained to me the scriptures like that. And if you've ever asked that question, I actually want to suggest to you today that you can walk with this King Jesus like that. We get up here on Sundays and we talk about that little one-year Bible in the back. 
I get up here sometimes and I mention a five-year journal. What am I calling you to do by calling us as a church to get into that? I'm actually calling you to walk with Jesus. Take a journey with him. This isn't about Michael. This isn't about Perry. This isn't about anybody else who's up here. This is about you coming to the place where you actually take a journey with King Jesus, where he walks with you through the scriptures, where he speaks to you. The one-year Bible is to get you into the Word, Old Testament and New Testament. The five-year journal is to get you sort of engaging your own heart and your own mind with Him, looking, walking with Him, alongside Him, so you can know yourself and know Him and begin to be engaged with what He's called you to do. I love how Monica started with that. This is one of the things that we're called to do as a church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Say that with me. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. You all have a ministry. We're not trying to get you into full-time Christian work. We're trying to get you out there carrying the gospel of Christ Jesus because that's how you transform a city. That's how you affect people's lives. So Jesus literally has a, a Bible study with them that day. You know, one of my favorite books, if you, if you have not, this is such a good book. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible? Anybody? You have. Yes, yes. Okay, the Jesus Storybook Bible actually goes through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation and picks out key books and key things, and it shows you how Christ exists in every book. There's actually, and it's by a, a, a lady named, um, I have it somewhere, Sally Lloyd-Jones actually wrote it. Another lady named A.M. Hodges wrote a book, Christ in All the Scriptures, and she actually looks at every single book of the Bible and talks about how you can find Christ there. Two books. If you want an introduction to this, read the Jesus Storybook Bible. It is amazing. We've read it to our kids four or five times. I cry at almost every story. It is amazing. This lady just slayed it because she takes the Bible and she begins to unfold the story of Jesus. And that is what Jesus does with Cleopas and Mary that day. He walks with them. He meets them in their depression, in their hopelessness. And you might be here today going, I am lost. I am hopeless about this or that. And I would say to you, Jesus wants to meet you today. You might be here today going, man, this book is so dry. I don't even know how to read it. Well, my job is to help open it for you one day a week. But I'm actually calling you to pick up one of those red one-year Bibles and get in it so that you can walk with him. Walk with him. Talk with him. And more importantly, let him talk to ah, That's the good stuff. That is what it is about. Jesus was actually so strong with them. Go back to verse 25. After he had listened to all the reasons why Cleopas was depressed, he said, how foolish you are. How foolish you are. Have you ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Come on, right back there, Cole. Yes! You know that scene where Gandalf says, you know what I'm going to say? Fly, you, fly, you fools. Now, I don't know if Tolkien had this in mind. Tolkien was a strong believer. He actually sat with C.S. Lewis, two of my favorite authors, two of my favorite Christian guys. But they sat in, I think it was the Eagle and Child, Eagle and Child pub. That's on my bucket list. I'd like to have a pint where they sat. Can I say that? 
But he said, Gandalf said, fly you fools. And that's where Gandalf actually fell. Probably a picture of what Jesus was doing on the cross. Amazing. But Jesus looks at Cleopas and he looks at Mary and he says, how foolish you are. I mean, he rebukes them. And then he opens the scriptures. Now, our third point is that Jesus begins to open their mind to understand, and then he opens their eyes to see. And let me just say here, one of the great challenges for me about ministering in the Bible Belt South, it's, I went, Lord, can you please call us to plant a church anywhere but here? I really did, because everybody's sweet. And because we're sweet, we say, oh, we're Christian. We're Christian, y'all. Just because you're sweet doesn't mean you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus. It's good to be sweet. Be sweet, everybody. <laughs> but people here sometimes will say, you, you know, somebody's sharing about how difficult something is or something that's heartrending going on in their life, and somebody will say, brother, you just got to have faith. Sister, just, you know, pick up and just believe. It's almost like somehow here in the Bible Belt South, we've checked our brains and we've stopped looking at the authenticity of the word. I read a thing this week that was so um, fascinating to me because the, the person actually said, there is more historical evidence. Um, there are more documents. There are more things written. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Not just the existence, the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And not only are there more documents, there are older documents of the resurrection and life of Christ Jesus than Julius Caesar. What? Have you ever heard somebody say, do you believe in Julius Caesar? I believe in Julius. We have less evidence for the existence of Julius Caesar than we do for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we get here in the Bible Belt South and people want to check their brains. That's why one of the core values of Saltbox is to be intelligent in the Word. We don't want to walk around going, just believe. We want to go walk with Jesus. So Jesus opens their minds to understand. He opens their eyes to see. And then they come to their homes. So they've traveled seven, seven and a half miles. We don't know exactly. And they're all of a sudden like, come on in. Come on, eat with us. Stay with us. Because Jesus acts like he's going further. So they get inside. And in typical uh, Jewish custom, the guest would do the blessing. It's unusual, different than America. And also in traditional Jewish custom, uh, the guests would break the bread. So they'd be sitting at the table, and Jesus takes the bread, and he says a blessing. And then what's he do? He breaks the bread. Now, we talked about it last week, but where were those scars on Jesus? Why weren't they here? Because it would have ripped out. The bread's in the palms of his hands. Have you ever seen anybody break bread like this? Break bread like this. He gave thanks. And when he gave thanks, those big sleeves, what would they have done? Fallen down to his elbows. And suddenly, Cleopas and Mary are sitting there, and they go,
King Jesus is here. King Jesus is alive. King Jesus, what we gave everything for, what we invested our lives into, what we put our money into, what we put our time into, we gave everything for him, and we were leaving in such despair. King Jesus is alive, and not only is his, he alive, he is real, and we've got to go tell everybody, and it's like all of this depression, all of this disappointment, all of this sadness is suddenly broken. And their eyes see. And then they pulled out their phones and sent a text message to the disciples. <laughs> What'd they do? What's it say they did? It's night. It is after dark, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have all you guys meet at my house after dark tonight, okay? Come on over there about 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And we're going to run to the south end of Wrightsville Beach. Does that sound good? I got one. I got one taker. What does it say they did? What does it say they did? First it says, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But then it says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They ran seven miles back. They were so amped. They got up at once and returned to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together saying, it is true. He is risen. Remember what we said last week, like the Greek Orthodox Church? He is risen. And what do you say? He is risen. He is risen. That's what they're gathering in Jerusalem saying. And Cleopas and Mary got up and ran all the way back. I do have to tell you that my dear friend Clive back here was the one who opened my eyes on the sleeves falling down at a little restaurant right over here. And when he did, I went, oh, man. <laughs> that right there will preach. <laughs> but they ran all the way back. And you've got these people who for three days were in the despair and depression and the dregs and life is over and it's all meaningless. And suddenly they are infused with life and they're going, oh my goodness, here we thought Rome killed Jesus, but it's actually that God intended this from eternity past and he used the wicked men and maybe women to, to establish his purposes on the earth. And it's not just taking over Rome. It's like taking over the world. It's King Jesus who is risen, who is alive, who is here, and who is walking with us and wants to walk with you. And we've got to tell the world. We're not our hearts burning within us. I think they were probably burning for two reasons, and i got to end. They were probably burning first because they were convicted. Failed to believe. We lost heart. We lost faith. We lost hope. Have you ever done that? If you don't say yes, you're lying to me. Probably first because they failed to believe. And maybe even because they had not fully seen the story of Jesus through the Old Testament. Like their eyes are open. They're going, whoa! Jesus had his first Bible study with somebody right there. He never did that before he died, by the way. Ever. He only opened people's eyes to the Old Testament scriptures after his resurrection. And then the second reason their hearts would have been burning is because they were suddenly infused and consumed with hope. And they were commissioned to go and share the gospel. Which might bring us to our last point. Jesus activates them to share the gospel. But they had this cataclysmic moment, just like I did on that sailboat. 
Just like you may have done in different scenarios in your life where you go, what have I done? Only the difference is they were playing for eternity. I don't know where you are today, church. But find yourself in here somewhere. You may be downcast, depressed, not grasping the story of the gospel like they were when they began. You may be stuck, unable to see Jesus in the scriptures. You may be giving up on life, on him, on a marriage, on a job, on something else. Just giving up, I'm done. And he wants to come in and infuse you with his purpose and his grace and his hope on this day. He wants to set your heart on fire. He wants your heart to burn within you. And he wants to call you to become a companion and participant with him in sharing the gospel. Because our job is to equip the saints for their work of ministry. Say it again. Our job is to equip the saints for their work of Say with me, I have a ministry. ministry. You do. You do. Your life matters. You are significant. And if you will let the Holy Spirit ignite a fire within your being, he will ignite you to be a companion and participant with him in reaching the people around you. We've got a message to tell. Because historically and archaeologically and in the biblical narrative, our Jesus is alive. Let's stand. And let him speak to us.